Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives, from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi everyone, Dr. Adriana Popescu here with you today with another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I am honored today to have with me as my guest, someone who I know from many years ago when I was still in grad school, Dr. Frederick Luskin. He is a psychologist who's been teaching at Stanford University for the past 30 years with a PhD in counseling and health psychology, also from Stanford, and he holds clinical licenses as a psychologist and as a marriage and family counselor. Currently, he is on the faculty for the GSB Executive Education Program, and he also serves as director of the Stanford University Forgiveness Projects, a worldwide expert on the topic of forgiveness. Dr. Luskin is the author of the best-selling books, Forgive for Good, A Proven Prescription for Health and Happiness, and Forgive for Love, The Missing Ingredient for a Healthy and Lasting Relationship, and Stress-Free for Good, 10 Scientifically Proven Life Skills for Health and Happiness. So happy to have you with us today. Welcome, Fred. Thank you. It's nice, nice to see you again. Yes, I was fortunate enough to actually have you on my dissertation committee when I was in graduate school. So uh, that was a long time ago. It was Yes. So I always like to start off the show with asking my guests a little bit about themselves, their journey, and how it is that you came to be doing this wonderful work uh, that you've been doing for for so long now. I mean, I'm old enough. I, I was uh, I was a late late sixties, early seventies hippie, <laughs> and um, what was part of whatever that peace, love, and granola thing was. You know, I remember making granola on my stove and um, learning to meditate and do yoga back in. Um, you know, when it wasn't popular and people thought you were weird. And um, I've always, not always, but for decades, I've had, I'm going to say, a spiritual interest. Mm -hmm. So those have already been there. So it's drawn me to try to find things to do with my life that might be accommodating to that and um, useful to the planet. So for almost a decade, I ran a natural foods restaurant in Santa Cruz and um, then became a school psychologist, but the the school system was stifling to me and um, um, was lucky enough and determined enough to get into Stanford for a PhD. And that changed my whole life because... I had never been around such successful people. Mm-hmm. And I learned things about how to be successful that I had no knowledge of and um, literally flipped my life around. So 
the work that I did at Stanford, had I done it a decade before, nobody would have heard about. Mm-hmm. But doing work at Stanford, you get a platform that's unimaginable. And um, you just you just learn how to, um, I don't know, maybe promote yourself a little bit. But so my my work on forgiveness came because I was a miserable unforgiver, having been very badly hurt and had no idea what to do about it, except get pissed off and feel sorry for myself. That didn't work that well. I did it for a long time. It didn't work well the whole time. Literally, one day my wife came to me and said, Fred, basically, you got to grow up. That like shit happens and you're not doing very well with it. And um, please. So she was the kick in the butt that I needed to try to get over being a self-centered victim. And um I figured out a couple things that were not pretty, both about myself and about what to do. And those things I figured out, I turned into the Stanford Forgiveness Project. And what were some of those things that really stood out for you in your own journey toward forgiveness? Because I don't imagine it was easy at first. (laughs) I went into a Safeway Mm -hmm. in um, San Jose. I mean, I know you're in the Bay Area, too. I went into a Safeway in San Jose after just having had an argument with my wife. And I was still at the very end of my full of self-pity, life isn't fair to me phase, which lasted a few years. I mean, this is not, this is not just a minor Fred was a jerk for a while. Fred was a jerk for a long time. Um, so I went into Safeway. And my wife had asked me to get something and told me they only had it in Safeway. And I wanted to go to a different supermarket. So I marched to the aisle where what she wants is there and they don't have it. And in my self-pity and my kind of narcissistic wounding, I got really like filled with like, wow, life is not fair. And then for whatever reason, for whatever grace, I stopped for a second and like a veil lifted and I saw, wow, Fred, you're in Safeway. (laughs) It's like a billion people starving to death and you can buy whatever you want and you're complaining because maybe now you have to go to Albertsons. What the hell's wrong with you? So that that moment of seeing my own life clearly literally transformed my wounding because it brought me to the present and it made me focus for uh, very deeply on what I had, not what I didn't have. And that, that was transformative. The other thing that changed me and taught me forgiveness was I was betrayed by someone. And I kept on like arguing with it in my head. It's not fair and he's not good and all this stuff. And his life went on uninterrupted and mine sucked. So that seemed like an even worse offense than anything. Why should I have such a bad life? 
when I'm the helpless victim. And then about similar time to noticing Safeway, I asked myself, so in these last few years, Fred, have you ever wished this person well? Like, what kind of friend have you been? And all of a sudden, the game just disappeared. Like I had used his bad behavior to defend my bad behavior. And once that went away, the game's over. So those two things were personally transformative. And I I took those learnings and made a forgiveness training out of it. That's amazing. Um, you know, as you're speaking about kind of using the the resentment or the the lack of forgiveness you had towards your friend, um, how that can uh, be the justification or rationalization for this like helpless, powerless victim. You've mentioned it a few times, like a victim mentality or victim consciousness. And I, I see that all the time working with clients, you know, it it not only keeps them shackled to the past, but it keeps them very disempowered. That's it. And I, I, I understood from some spiritual readings how low energy victim status is. Like it's, it's vibrationally very poor and it doesn't draw you good things. No. So what I came to understand is that it can be a necessary stop to deal with unmerited um, suffering. So like if you're hit by a car, you'd be an idiot not to feel like a victim for a while. That would, of course, you know, duh. Or if somebody close to you mistreats you, you are a victim for a while. But that's part of grief. It's part of a process that's meant to protect you for a while from the immensity of what has happened and help you reintegrate. It's not designed to be a landing. And so I saw that I was using victim status and it was ruining my life. Mm -hmm. But it didn't make it wrong the first say six months, I might have had that experience. It made it self-destructive after that. Yes. In fact, you've actually done a lot of research on this topic and actually found that there's like negative consequences to holding on to resentments and to not forgiving, right? Health consequences. Of course. Well, that famous, you know, resentment is drinking poison and waiting for it to kill your enemy. I mean, that is so self-evident. But again, you have to be careful to, like, you can't eliminate anger and you can't eliminate self-pity. They are worthwhile, short-term ways of holding life that can be useful when you can't let reality in. They give you a place to look and hold and say, wow, I can't fully hold this. So I'm going to give myself a a safety of poor me or bad them. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, anger, anger oftentimes is considered a more a mobilizing kind of energy or a more empowered energy than like depression or shame, which I think are even lower vibrational. I think it you is. Know? However, yeah. the research is that after, um, I don't know if the word is trauma, but after difficulty or loss, if anger is your predominant emotion six months later, you have a bad outcome. Mm. That so it's unlimited. It's a, unless anger is used at the moment to be protective, with, and the research talks about the difference between constructive and destructive anger. Mm-hmm. So let's say you just say something offensive to me. I'm a big enough boy. I've I've learned how to say, okay, she can say something offensive to me. That's not my problem. But let's say I can't do that. And let's say I just say to you, hey, stop that. That's your problem. I don't want to hear it. And the anger lasts five seconds. And then 15 seconds later, I'm back in conversation and we're fine. That can be constructive anger. Destructive anger is after I say that to you for five seconds, then I call three people and say what a jerk you are. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else later in the day may be rude for me. And I say, that's the second jerk today. I can't take any more jerks. Mm-hmm. That, that's anger being destructive because it's solving nothing. And it's a, it's a false sense of power. Well, and it, and it eats you up inside, too. I mean, I, I've experienced this longer term kind of resentment energy we're talking about feeling very toxic. Like, it kind of makes me feel sick for myself when I really tune into my body and, and how I experience it. Completely. And on a, on a much bigger stage, one of the things that human beings do to be so destructive to each other and the planet is they use their grievances for them to be unkind or selfish. Yeah. So if you could have the nicest partner lover in the world and you can say, well, hey, two years ago you cheated on me. So today I'm still going to be nasty to you. Right. Or six weeks ago you forgot to take out the garbage. So how dare you give me any grief for me forgetting to buy the food? That's destructive. And that's the human tendency to not want to take responsibility for the garbage we contribute to the world. Yeah. It's, it's keeping a scorecard, right? Like I'm going to make note of all the times you did me wrong. And then I'm going to use that against you in some way. It is true. Yeah. I think people have a lot of misperceptions though, about what forgiveness is. And maybe you can speak to this a little, I'm not sure if it comes from, I think some of it might be religious teachings that some of us get, but Oftentimes people think that when you forgive someone, it's like saying that what they did was okay, or they're like going to get away with something that was fundamentally wrong. Can you comment on that? I mean, forgiveness means the actual act of forgiveness means 
that something that I once thought of as not okay, I've now made peace with. So let's say you said something rude or obnoxious. I got mad at you for five seconds. I go home, I reflect about it, and I think, eh, you know, fine. <laughs> it's like nobody's perfect, or Fred, you didn't have to bark at her, or maybe she had a tough day. So I was once upset, and then, okay, I'm at peace with that. It's nothing. That making peace after my own reactivity, that's what forgiveness is. Yes. Yeah. So reckons, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 sorry. I was going to say, it doesn't even have to do with the other person, per se. Reconciliation means we rejoin relationship. Mm-hmm. So if I said to you, uh, I'm never I'm never speaking to you again, and then I forgive, and then I say, oh, I think my words were a little harsh. So then I might call you up and say, you know, I'm sorry I overdid it. Maybe we'll talk again. That's reconciliation. Mm-hmm. The, the biggest mistake that people make is thinking that forgiveness means all of a sudden what they did was okay. What it means is it wasn't, it, that at that moment it wasn't okay, but that's, that in itself is okay. I mean, people make mistakes. They do stupid things. They're selfish. They do harsh things. That's part of being a human being. So when you forgive them, you recognize that, yes, it wasn't okay. And we have the capacity to make that itself okay. Yeah, it's a choice that we can make. And and then, and then I know you've written about this too. One of the ways in which people get hooked into this resentment territory is that they're taking things personally, right? Like if you're, um, if, if I made some, yeah, obnoxious comment to you or something like that, you're taking it personally as if it is really about you. And yeah, maybe I was having a bad day. Maybe I'm upset with someone else. Maybe I am a jerk of some sort, but you know, so many people make it about themselves. Like if this person treated me this way, there must be my, somehow my fault or something wrong with me. And they take it personally. Is that's a big part of it, right? I mean, unfortunately, yeah. most of the people we deal with in this world, most of their behavior is about them. Right. And I mean, when I used to teach a lot of classes, which I could only do for so long, um, I would remind people all the time that, you know, the, the really bad news is that you're just not that important. That the, the world, universe. <laughs> yeah, the world basically doesn't give a shit about you. So don't take traffic personally. Don't take a plane being late personally. Don't take your partner being in a bad mood personally, because almost none of it is related to you. The real problem is you're on. You're mostly irrelevant. <laughs> and if you want to get at the deeper issues in life, it's how do you deal with that? Yeah. That that you have to find meaning and purpose in your life that's not so dependent on how the world is treating you all the time. Right. right. Where it gets really tricky, though, um, 
is sometimes people do try to harm you. And that is rare, but it does happen. Sure. And that requires a very challenging grieving process. Yes. Yes. You know, I work a lot with addiction and trauma and um, we do address, you know, I work at a rehab and we do address this issue of forgiveness. It's certainly a big part of the 12 step program as well. Right. And, um, and on both sides, taking ownership for things you may have misdeeds you've done against others and then also letting go of resentments that you're holding towards uh, people. But, you know, a lot of times that people struggle when there is that history of a traumatic or abusive experience, like how could I possibly ever forgive my abuser, the person who did atrocious things to me, maybe at a very young age in childhood. Um, and, but the problem is that them holding on to it, it's like a ball and chain. That was the metaphor I used last, last week, just talking about this topic. It's like, you're dragging around this ball and chain of your pain and, and suffering and your lack of forgiveness it's harming you. It's not making your abuser stop what they're doing or, um, or they're not, you know, the likelihood of them being sorry and saying sorry to you, you might be waiting forever for that to happen. Um, so I think, I think a lot of people getting stuck in that. I think one of the ways that you can help people is to teach them to stop using any words along those lines of my abuser. Yeah that when they, when they refer to somebody as my abuser, one, they're not your anything. But two, when you link in to that's the definition of your relationship, one, it, it makes you tell a terrible story and it puts you up to react with stress every single time that you deal with them. So part of the forgiveness project process is to stop holding them as your anything and stop limiting them to maybe some of their worst qualities. So you can refer to them with a lot more complexity. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if it's a parent, it can grow into somebody who just through their own issues had no idea how to love their children or due to their own lack of self-regulation, they couldn't control themselves and it really damaged me. Mm-hmm. But that that allows openness on the other side. It's ownership of, you know, this really horrible thing happened to me and I'm still struggling to figure out how to heal from it mm-hmm. is so much healthier than holding on to my abuser, my this, my that, because you're totally stuck when that's how you're holding it. Yeah. And the pain of that, I think, is can be so great that this is one of the justifications that they use for the drinking and using of drugs, right? Like the pain that I'm still holding on to is so great that I need to numb it with these different addictive behaviors. But it also limits them to victimhood. It does. Absolutely. Because it's such a weak position. Yes. That even 20 years later, I'm defining myself as the helpless recipient of somebody else's worst side. Yeah. And and that um, way of holding it um, honestly can't be blamed on them. 
And it's, it's that's how you separate. It's not their fault that you have held them in that position for 20 years. Right. And, and, you know, I think it also comes back to issues of power and control, right? Like you may not with, when you were a child, you may not have been able to control the things that happened to you, but now, especially as an adult, you do have control and choice. You can choose to shift your perspective. You can choose to engage in a process of forgiveness, which is for you. It's not for the other person. It's for your own well-being. So I had a moment one of the teaching moments of my career. The first time I did a class at Esalen, you know, by the Pacific Coast, I had just started on this path and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I walk into the room and there's like 30 people in the room and we're at a, it has a view of the Pacific Ocean which is so gorgeous. And I sit down and all these people start looking at me and I'm thinking, I'm not ready for this. There's like 30 people (laughs) and I don't say anything, but enough of them know that I'm there as the teacher that they start nudging me. So I ask them, what brings you here? And I'm going to say the first four or five people each told a story about why their mothers brought them there. Like a mother in, you know, 2000 who hit them or a mother now who's demented and is a pain in the ass. But every, each of them had some issue with their mother. And we go around the room and after about 15 people, I think to myself, well, wait a second. Um, About 10 of them had brought up their mothers. Like, they had crappy mothers. <laughs> and, and, and I thought two things, though. One is, if so many people have crappy mothers, why do we keep on telling this story as if our mother is unique? And why don't we just talk about, well, we fall into that category of crappy mother. How do we pull ourselves out? Mm-hmm. But... This what you're relating to is what came to me as I'm sitting there listening to all these people was, yeah, you know, if you're 18 or maybe 21 and below, your mother has a large responsibility for how screwed up you are. (laughs) But as the years go by, you gain more and more responsibility. So if from zero to 18, maybe mom's 80% because you lived with her. And then from 18 to 21, it gets to 70%. And from 21 to 25, it gets to 60%. And by 30, 35, maybe it's 45% them and 55% you because what have you done with your years away from mom? Like how have you lived from 18 to 35, not what did mom do? Right. That changed my entire approach to talking to people. Yes. Well, it really does require a shift in perspective, right? Because um, we can get very entrenched in that victim consciousness and that they did this to me, they're the enemy, they're bad, they're wrong. It's a very oppositional, you know, kind of energy. Um, and, and people just get lost in that and, and 
very, very bitter. Man, I, I've seen some real hardcore alcoholics who are so they're it's like they're holding on to the alcohol as tightly as they're holding on to their wounds and their pain and suffering and they did me wrong and everyone's against me and it's just it can be really difficult for people to come out of that sucks all the air out of the room doesn't it yes, yes it does for sure um so in i want to ask you this fred in your books um you talk about how they're are that forgiveness isn't really like a, I mean, I, I suppose it can happen in an instantaneous moment, but it's more of a process. Like you've actually outlined nine steps in the forgiveness process. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's both a decision and a process. So the forgiveness researchers talk about decisional forgiveness and emotional forgiveness. You have to have both. You have to make a decision at some point that I want to free myself of the ways of holding this wounding that are keeping me stuck. And having spoken to a number of people who have had just horrific woundings, I mean, children murdered or, you know, like daughters raped at knife point or political violence, just horrible things. Many of the people after a while say, I'm going to, I'm driving myself crazy. Like no matter what might've happened in the past, like I can't think like this anymore. So you need a moment like that where you recognize that you're stuck. And that's the decisional forgiveness. The emotional forgiveness is the patternings that you then take on afterwards to soothe and heal yourself. The, the biggest thing that I think I have come to understand is the need for simply making peace with your own life and referring much less to them and they and the past and what wounding there is, but to remember like, at any moment, you can be at peace with your life. And in that experience of peace is forgiveness. And then what the job is to expand those moments of peace. So it- Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just gonna say, I mean, the, the first thing that strikes me if I'm, especially if I'm listening to this and, and it's new information for me is like, well, how do I do that? You do anything. <laughs> I mean, you can look out your window and realize you're in a beautiful world. Or you can stop for a moment and reflect on, when was the last time I felt loved? And then right at this moment, when you ask that question, you're at peace. Mm. And in that peace, You've let go of the limitations you placed on yourself for accepting your life. Mm -hmm. Or you can meditate for a few moments, close your eyes, quiet down center and be at peace. Or you can repeat an affirmation or you can sip a cup of tea and just reflect on the abundance in your life for just being able to grab a cup of tea. It, there's so many, or people knit. It doesn't matter what you do, but it's a present-centered 
certainty that right now, just now, I'm safe. I'm okay. Uh, no matter what happened in the past, it's in the past. And I can, I can be at peace in my life even though I've had these bad experiences, you can't, you can't wipe away bad experiences. And that, that one of the worst maxims is forgive and forget. Yeah. That's like a total idiocy. You know, I remember like, what are you going to do? Forget that your kid was murdered or forget that your parents beat the shit out of you. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but, but here's, Here's how we understand it. Um, forgive and remember differently. That's, that's what forgiveness is. It teaches you the skills and the, the necessity to change the story in your head so that you remember it differently. So it, again, instead of the abuser, it was, you know, I had this difficult experience that I had to learn to accept and make peace with. Um, instead of he's a shit to, boy, that was one messed up human being that I really have, you know, I don't know why he came into my life, but boy, it's taken me a lot of work to make peace with. Those are the, the more powerful statements that replace just victimhood um, or anger. So it's a shift in perspective mentally, kind of cognitively. And then also we have to do some kind of emotional releasing as well, right? Like maybe it, or feeling first, we have to feel the things because most of us tend to not even want to go there and feel things, but maybe allow ourselves to be present with those emotions, the grief, the anger, whatever, and then allow those to also shift, right? You know, that's more necessary in the grief stage. Like, you have to grieve. And as a therapist, you might see lots of people who have never successfully grieved. Yeah. So you have to give them space to grieve. However, that grief does not need to last forever. And after a while, it becomes destructive. Mm -hmm. What I would say more than... Yes, and it's helpful as a therapist to teach everybody some degree of mindfulness mm -hmm. to notice your experience, label it, and let it go. Mm -hmm. But the two, the two things that I would put as the forgiveness process are, one, calm your mind-body down. So I'd be more interested in the mindfulness to relax or breathing or some positive thing to lower your arousal mm -hmm. and I would up people's level of positive experience. Mm -hmm. So instead of just spending a therapy hour talking how bad your mom is, let's talk about the people who have loved you since. Yes. That would be my way of answering that question. Raise the positive rather than just endlessly help people re reprocess the negative yeah because we get stuck in that and we already have a bias toward negativity just in general right so getting people to access gratitude right getting people to access compassion 
these are other vibrations, we can call them higher vibrations, right? That can allow us to shift away from the loop of negativity. And I'm going to say that post grieving, that's probably the healthiest thing that we can teach people is to look for the good, um, to savor the good, and to teach the mind to not just focus on the negative. That's that's a wonderful re-education process. Yeah, I love that. And then can you talk a little bit about what benefits that then brings? If people are able to engage with this process and start to shift their perspectives and release whatever emotions they're still hanging on to, then what are the promises and benefits that can come from that? You can be at peace with yourself. Yeah. I mean, what, what, would, what else can we get here? You know, it's like, imagine if you woke up in the morning and thought, I've had some shit in my life. I've had some abundance in my life. I can handle life. And I'm open to see what it brings me next. I mean, that's, you don't get any guarantees. One of the things I would tell people all the time in forgiveness classes, you may have had the worst dad in the world, but don't spend time back in the past because you don't know what assholes come in your way next. <laughs> you might miss it. You might not it's see it coming. Or you might get blindsided and be so <laughs> stuck on dad that you won't have the resources to handle what's coming at you now. There's no guarantee that life is going to be easy. So don't waste it arguing with the past. Yes, yes. It's holding you hostage. That's what I say to my clients. So you're letting the past hold you hostage. Is that really the life you want to live? It is exactly that. Mm Mm-hmm. This is so. This is such important information, Fred. Um, I, I, if people want to find out more, what do you suggest? Because I'm sure that for some people listening and watching, this has piqued their curiosity. Maybe they are realizing that they too are stuck. Where do they go? What do they do? I mean, if they want to learn more about what I did, there's like a hundred YouTube videos or more with me yakking on forgiveness in different ways, places. Most of what I say because of YouTube is out there in the public. There's hour-long things. There's eight-minute clips. You know, they're just out there. Um, Forgive for Good is a hugely successful book on forgiveness. They can learn how to do it through that. You know, if somehow... They wanted a coaching session from me about forgiveness, like they can email me. But, the, you know, the the videos go a long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Any as we as we wind this down, do you feel like there's anything we missed or anything else you would want uh, the viewers and listeners to know about this whole topic? Two things. You can learn to forgive. That's. All of our research was about, it's a teachable skill. It's not esoteric. You don't have to be religious. You can teach yourself how to let go of the past and be more present in your life, one. And two, 
the biggest issue is not really with the past, but when something offends us or hurts us, we're doing an algorithm with it, even though we may not know this. So again, I use this stupid example that you might have been rude to me. What I'm doing when I'm reacting to that is I'm looking at my whole life and I'm asking myself in a moment, was I loved enough? Was I gratified enough? Was I given enough? Did I get enough? Did life nourish me enough to be kind to you? And when we don't practice gratitude and when we over practice grievance, we answer all the time, no, life hasn't given me enough so that I could be kind to you. And because of that, we create rotten lives for ourselves. And that's its real damage. Forgiveness is to say in the present, hey, she might have said something that's not perfect, so what? I do all the time. That's the healthy life that we hope for. What a gift. Thank you so much, Fred, for this conversation today and for all the work that you've done, because I think with what you've been putting out there, you've trans helped people transform their lives on a huge scale. And I would love to see more people engaging in this process because I think it would be a very different world. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's nice to see you again. All right. And thanks everyone for tuning in today. If you like this podcast episode, please do share it, um, like it, rate it, you know, all the things that will help those algorithms get it out there in the hands of more people. And I thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.